Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this special episode of Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program is Daniel Marins. Daniel is a Huffington Post reporter and he covers electoral politics and state policy. The kind of uh, nitty gritty stuff that makes most of our eyes glaze over. So Daniel was the perfect guy to bring on the show to break down the recent victories that were won by open socialists and far-left progressives in Democratic Party primaries across the country, particularly in the state of Pennsylvania. This was a couple of weeks ago. I phoned up Daniel, and he graciously agreed to come on. He's a friend of the show, solid guy. And uh, so we're going to chat it up for about an hour, talking about, okay, what happened? Who are the players involved? Who won? uh, Where are the key races? What does this mean for 2018 and the midterm elections? And uh, what does this mean for a certain kind of leftward shift in the American political temperament going into 2020? You know, we as socialists fight to go far beyond just mere electoral politics, but state power matters. Who is in office matters greatly. And Daniel and I are going to chop that up a little bit. Towards the end of the episode, we talk about some of the pitfalls and contradictions of engaging in electoral politics as open socialists. There are a number of limitations that uh, these candidates will face should they be elected into office once they hit their respective state legislatures. So we want to talk about that, start thinking through like what it means to be an open socialist at the helm of a capitalist state. Uh, It's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult road, but it's, it's one that uh, we nonetheless have to travel. So if you're a patron, you're going to get the full hour of this episode, full interview with Daniel Marins. If you're not a patron of the show, you're just going to get a little bit of a teaser. Uh, just enough to wet your whistle, get you extra thirsty for that subscriber-only content. Uh, as most of you know by now, I've recently brought in a new, a new co-host, Amy. She's fantastic. She won't be joining me for this interview, unfortunately. But uh, we really want to expand our offerings. In order to do that, we're kind of engaging in a little bit of a fun drive for the month of June. So for all of the patrons out there, we really appreciate your support. We've got a lot of subscriber content coming your way. If you've been on the outside looking in, thinking about becoming a member of the Dead Pundit Society, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. I know many of you already contribute to a number of uh, Patreons out there, whether they be podcasts, journalists, think tanks, or otherwise. So we understand that you know your monthly budget in that respect can be somewhat limited, but we really do need your support. Uh, you know, we, we will never have any sort of outside funding or any of the rest of it. Turns out there aren't these, you know, millionaires and billionaires just dying to throw their money at left-wing socialist podcasters. So we do require your uh, generosity and uh, very thankful those who are supporting us already. So without further ado, here's my interview with Daniel Marins. Joining me on the line is Daniel Marins. Daniel is a reporter at the Huffington Post, and he's here to talk to us about some of the recent electoral victories and shifts in the landscape. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Adam. Uh, Long-time listener. Uh, I'm kind of a fanboy right here. 
Hey, I appreciate it, man. I'm not, I, I'm, the feeling is mutual. I love your work. You're a very busy guy. So tell, tell uh, our audience what you're up to over there at HuffPost. You are uh, just, I mean, just posting feverishly. Like people on Twitter never stop <laughs> posting. You never stop posting over on Huffington Post. You've got like four or five stories a day. Tell us where you came <laughs> from and uh, tell us about your beat. Well, it, it really depends on the week. There was some unexpected news, I would say, on election day. But I, I cover primarily these days the Democratic Party and progressive movements, both basically in terms of just how Democrats are are doing uh, politically, especially at the congressional and, and gubernatorial levels, what races they're winning, and really how they're winning them and and sort of how that is uh, how the, the sort of ideological fight for the soul of the party is being manifest in this sort of post-Trump era backlash. I've also in the past worked on economic policy here. I used to cover Federal Reserve interest rate decisions, which Ooh, should be really important. Well, I, that was <laughs> the whole thing. They, they were like, okay, explain it to the average Huffington Post reader why this matters. Yeah. And that was an, it was really it was actually exciting opportunity to, to do that and to also explore the first real progressive movement to lobby the Fed from the left, which mm-hmm. doesn't really and lobby lawmakers who oversee the Fed from the left. So it that's a it's kind of a, a weird niche. Uh, I, I also still have a soft spot for, you know, so for America's social insurance system and issues related to that. Uh, taxing and spending and specifically social security and medicare and medicaid and all sorts of other programs like that because i actually began my career in dc prior to journalism as a policy researcher for a group called social security works which when i graduated school in 2010 was basically just forming up with some liberal foundation money to fight the big bull simpson commission on deficit and debt reduction that obama convened because it was a, a smart, serious adult thing to do. Um, <laughs> I didn't know you had an Obama under your belt. We're going to use that. At some point. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's not as tongue in cheek as Michael Brooks's. But Michael um, Brooks, uh, shout out to Michael Brooks, the Michael Brooks show. He's, he's got his a little uh, more down <laughs> pat, but yours is solid, solid. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I, the reason I just mentioned that and, and then I'll like end my little intro here is that really informed I mean, I wanted to go into reporting so I could look at these things through a more independent lens than just being on somebody's team, um, even though I obviously do have a left-leaning way of, of looking at, at all these issues and, and, and unabashedly so, and I don't in, indulge false equivalency, but I'm also not just like a blogger. Like I, if I'm writing about somebody that I'm critiquing, I will or I will always ask for comment from them, et cetera, you know, sort of these reporting protocols. Uh, but the reason my experience there really informs what I do is that from the get-go, I was working in a position at Social, Social Security Works where in 2010 with deficit fever, we were, we were, we were like the least popular kid in school. And I was, right. you know, I, I this fresh out of college kid, really idealistic and hearing from everybody at all these cocktail parties that I was just working for these these dead enders, these social security denialists. I mean, the Washington Post editorial board compared it to climate change denial. You know that if you think that social security can't doesn't need to be cut, that you're equivalent yeah. to that. And and we were going up against the president at a time when a Democratic president at a time when most people really didn't want to hear it. 
and, and didn't want to believe it either. And I think that the left has matured a lot in that way. And I've seen a lot of the people that are on the non-Republican side of the aisle, ranging from your conservatives to your socialists, uh, uh, like the the consensus has moved closer to that position, at least on economic policy, and and I think on a bunch of other areas as well. And so, but the skepticism of just what what passes for convention and what the Democratic Party says is attainable or doable or the right thing to do uh, just informs my work. Yeah, I mean, that Overton window, to, to use a, a shitty phrase, but I think it works in a, in a limited sense, the Overton window has really shifted uh, quite dramatically since you started you know, uh, your, your work in, in 2010 and afterwards in your journalism. And, uh, you know, as they say, you know, just to prefigure the rest of the conversation, you know, as only Nixon could go to China. Well, only Obama could make, you know, uh, cutting, uh, you know, our, our social safety nets, uh, social insurance could make that a progressive issue, right? A progressively sanctioned issue, um, which, which is exactly why I think it's so essential that uh, we set ourselves up in the electoral arena, right? Is it as limited as that is, right? In the electoral arena, we set ourselves up so that we don't just swing back in that direction with the next Democrat, right? I mean, you, easily, you could just as easily see a, a sort of triangulation uh, effect go back into, uh, you know, uh, into effect once once Trump is out and, and the next guy is in. And I think that the 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 electoral work is so crucial coming from the grassroots to, to prevent that from happening because really we're really handcuffing uh, these these top presidential contenders on the Democratic Party. Uh, by our actions right now, by shifting that Overton window, right? I mean, there, there's, that's not a mystical, uh, magical process, right? It happens through, through, through the sweat of, uh, of, of a lot of actions of, of millions, you know, and the grassroots across the country. So it's really exciting we're seeing that. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, I think to make, I, I don't need to sell you on this, but to make an anti-accelerationist argument not like sort of seeding the electoral space and basically saying from a, like a sort of a radical left perspective that, that the, the democratic party or, or really, or just elections in under this system are, are imperfect. Therefore why participate? Um, it is, it ultimately, I, I very firmly believe that it actually further steps back the left agenda because what you have, you could just as easily, were it not for a very vibrant activist left right now, you could just as easily see a situation much like the situation we saw in, in you know, let's say the summer of 2016 leading up to the election there where it was like, look, it's either us or the brown shirts. And the the worse things get, actually, the more these kind of neoliberal centrist Dems can basically say, well, I'm, I'm much better than the alternative and we're in a crisis now. And from a, just a pure policy perspective, I mean, think about how much energy in the Obama administration was expended just trying to undo the Bush tax cuts and, 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 and only for a very limited segment of the population at that. But that was the source of multiple budget showdowns. And so... If if you're not pushing people to take ambitious stances, you know, all Democrats are ever going to be doing in these situations is 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 playing cleanup, you know, on the regulation of coal slurry and streams instead of you know doing something 
much more lasting that will then create the space again for um, for even greater reform. I, I very firmly believe that that people's expectations are are driven downward in these situations and and not um, and not toward uh, toward more radical solutions when when there are horrible people in power. So. Right. I think that's absolutely spot on. And I mean, it, it's just not inevitable that uh, there would be this progressive and leftward shift in the electoral arena. And I think there's a lot of wrongheaded takes that are coming out right now um, that presume that this Bernie wave is 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 not so subst- it's not so much substantive as it is just kind of inevitable and automatic as a response to Trump and Trumpism. Right. I mean, Jonathan Chait had a piece uh, <laughs> yesterday. Right, which is just the most tone deaf and inane thing I've I've seen in quite some time, and that's saying something coming from John Chait. <laughs> um, you know, is, is the the title was "Why Trump's Assault on Democracy Doesn't Bother the Illiberal Left," and it's just just this, it's this uh, just hit piece on Bernie and the quote unquote illiberal left as uh, not upholding the the quote unquote democracy movement of the centrist uh, you know liberals, which is like. Uh, what do you mean? Like, that's not a thing. Uh, I think it was actually, it was either Mar, I think it was Marshall Steinbaum, who was like, uh, economist over there, uh, on Twitter yesterday, who just said, like, you know, by the way, like, that, that's just not a thing. Like, what's the democracy movement? Like, that doesn't, that's not a coherent, like, uh, block of, like, you know, either, either ideological or strategic kind of, like, uh, uh, position in, in, in the United States in the, in the you know mainstream sort of scene right now. You're inventing this thing to use it as a cudgel against the Bernie left. And, yeah, um, I'm just looking at this piece right now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I, it's I, asinine. You know, we didn't talk, we didn't talk, we didn't plan on uh, talking about this piece in advance. But the chait, the chait take is really kind of like completely tone deaf with respect to what you just put forward. I mean, he he just presumes that the Bernie swing is just an inevitable response to Trump. But I think what you said is far more spot on. That what what I think was what I feared, honestly, following the election of Trump, is that everybody would run into the arms of the centrist neoliberal Democrats. Because, I mean, even if they didn't, even if their policies and what they wanted was far to the left of them, that they would just run to the safety of, of the status quo, right? Because, because the alternative in Trump and his cronies is just so much more uh, terrifying, you know, in some respects. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, old, uh, the old Tina doctrine. There is no alternative, you know. And, um, well, I don't know if that's the appropriate metaphor here, but, but certainly the, the uh, I don't know, Sila and Charybdis, uh, you know, just the... Like, you know, uh, choose, choose the lesser of two evils thing. And I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, if we were to do an assessment of this period compared to, let's say, the time in the wilderness in the 2000s, or really especially in like the 80s and early 90s, when there were all sorts of factors pushing Democrats to say, we need to abandon our labor roots. We need to get, you know, embrace sort of draconian crime, anti-crime policies and, 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 and sort of neoliberal economic policies and all those different things that intersect and, and buttress one another. I mean, it, it's really like night and day. And I think that the assessment that I would give is that at the, at the sort of federal level the in, in terms of congressional races and primaries thus far the kind of hard left or, or the the furthest left point within the democratic party tent again which is not that far left obviously 
it has um, not gotten a ton of victories in terms of the people, but you've seen an enormous shift in that proverbial Overton window and in terms of just the mainstreaming of positions like Medicare for All uh, in, in a way that's really kind of astounding. And, and so in a way, you've got the people that are sort of backed by the same old establishment players, your, your Emily's lists and your, your, your D trips that are embracing really ambitious policies and positions, or at least two or three steps ahead of where they were and will probably have to be held accountable if they are in Congress. And then way down ballot, you do have just a, 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 a very, very slow, slow, but steady and effective conquest building from what I might call the Bernie Sanders uh, patronage network and the the Democratic Socialists of America. And, and that's a very interesting thing because to me, that, that th- those races are more attainable. They are, they are more, um, and, and, and it's, it's the long game. I mean, I mean, those people are your future members of Congress. And it's the kind, these are the kinds of investments that I think the right wing was making 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, and, right and so that's an interesting building, thing to building see those grassroots and turning out the future leaders of the party and the movement. Right. Yeah. And that concludes the free teaser of this week's patron only episode. I hope that you enjoyed that little uh, clip of my interview with Daniel Marins. If you're a patron, you'll get the full hour along with access to our entire back catalog of B-sides and subscriber-only content. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of the society. Uh, We're kicking off a fun drive for the month of June. I know these things are kind of obnoxious, but we really do require your support to keep this thing going. We want to ramp up our offerings going into the summer and beyond. And so uh, we need your support to do that. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Uh, support the show, become a member. I know there are a lot of left podcasts out there and many of you probably already support at least one, if not more, but uh, we really do appreciate your generosity and we rely on it uh, heavily in order to keep this thing going. So until next week, Dead Pundit out.